I find it here in Australia sharper than anywhere else I have been in the world is this tall poppy syndrome. Oh, yeah. What is this you guys are? Hey, what don't, do you don't, hey, don't put hey, me in that. Come on, explain <laughs> it to me. Hey, don't put me in that. Jeez. Welcome to the Unfair Advantage Project. Unique perspectives, practical insights, and unexpected discoveries directly focused on giving you the unfair advantage. Introducing your hosts, Nadia Hughes and Terence Toe. Hi, it's Terence here, and welcome to the Unfair Advantage Project. On today's episode, we're interviewing Craig Harper. Craig is one of Australia's leading presenters. He's an author, he's an educator, he's a radio host, he's a TV presenter, and he's also a successful business owner. We covered a lot of different topics in our conversation today, and Craig dropped some serious value bombs. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of the Unfair Advantage Project. Thank you very much for agreeing to meet with us. Thanks for having me. <laughs> You're having us. Well, that is true. You are in my studio at my house, but I'm super lazy and I don't go anywhere. So here we are. We are very pleased to oblige. So, Craig, I am going straight to the point uh, and we will going to have a chat which we just drop off on top of your house. Where have you been? Yeah, we've been upstairs in my office. And we've been. we were chatting about a few things. So my most interesting thing is about businesses being useful to the business owners and I picked up on few occasions listening to you that you do have layers it's just yes layers I think she said not layers like Batman but but layers (laughs) that's right I I think we all have layers don't we yes we do have but so what's your first one superficial one let's just strip you down I think everybody has kind of four personas like there's there's the public you there's the personal you. So public you, this is the way I break it down. Public you is is this. So we're on a podcast. It couldn't be a lot more public. You know, it couldn't be much more public. So public is me doing radio, me doing events. And that the public personality is the one that we kind of let anyone and everyone see. That's what the world gets to see. And then personal you is more kind of where you might open up a little bit and you talk perhaps to friends and, you know, maybe colleagues, maybe acquaintances. Then you might go a little bit deeper to perhaps private you, which is maybe only one or two or three people in the world, depending on who you are and how you are, have access to that person. And then I would say there's secret you, and that's just you. Nobody gets to meet secret you. That's all the kind of inner workings, the thinking and the overthinking. And the, and that's different for everybody. But But I think sometimes what I try to do is – I try to open up so I might tap into personal and maybe even private me a little bit to big audiences and to groups so that they might get to understand a little bit about how I work and how I think rather than just presenting some kind of image or some kind of spiel, you know. And I think one of the reasons that some of my endeavours have been successful is because I'm kind of down to earth and practical, you know. So when I stand in front of an audience and we're talking about how to build a great life or a great business or a great health state or a great relationship or a great anything. I'm also sharing that. Go ahead. I'm also swearing that I'm, and I make, you know, silly decisions and, and I've got an ego and I'm insecure and I'm an overthinker and I'm fearful and all of those human things. And so when somebody can see someone that's, you know, successful-ish who also is flawed and human, 
apart from the other messages, I think just seeing somebody that's a bit broken and a bit gifted and a bit normal is encouraging in itself. It's become almost fashionable to be vulnerable self. And a lot of people just flaunt this side of themselves and just encouraged now, mm. be vulnerable, be authentic. How much of this vulnerability is genuine? And how- yeah, well, that, see, that's, that's, that's a great question. That's like, you know, simulated authenticity. Well, then it's not authenticity, yeah, is it? My- yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But I mean, for me, like I always say, if you want to know someone, ignore most of what they say and pay attention to all of what they do, you know. And so I think over time, you know, in the moment, it's maybe hard to figure out. I think I'm reasonably perceptive because I spend all of my life talking to people, with people, around people. And so I've had a, tens of thousands of conversations because of my very specific background in personal training and so on. But I think you figure out who people are over time. And, you know, we talk about this notion in professional development and personal development and, you know, just living in general of living in alignment or living authentically, which also is a bit of a catch cry and it's a bit wanky. But for me, Living in alignment means that my behaviors, my standards, the things that I do, my results, my choices, my relationships, my words are consistent with my values. Give me an example. Okay. So, for example, if I say to you, well, one of my values is health and exercise and discipline and, you know, kind of managing, valuing my body for the gift that it is. And you go, well, that makes sense. And I go, you know, you can't go and get another body. You've only got one. It's irreplaceable. So it's a gift. Value it, you know, and then you leave. And then as you're driving home, after you've had a coffee across the road, you see me walking down the street with a cheeseburger and some fries while sucking on a cigarette and drinking a can of VB. You go, well, he was talking about how much he values health well, and wellness. Well, I just will say it's vulnerable him. Maybe, maybe, you know. And so This it is just, authentic. Yeah. Or if somebody says, you know, my values are family time and my kids and, you know, sitting by the beach and connection and communication with my wife, but all they do is work 100 hours a week and clearly their priority and their focus and all of their energy goes into their business and not into their family and not into the kids and not into paying attention and not to making emotional and physical and psychological investment into their family, then I'd say, well, that sounds good, but you don't do that. There is no alignment. And there's no, we're not trying to be judgy about this. We're just trying to, you know, we were talking upstairs in my office before this and we were talking about, you know, how some people are successful and at the same time they're a failure, depending on, you know, how you scale or how you evaluate success. So I got to a point in my life where, I was quite successful in inverted commas in a typical outside looking incense. You know, I was making good money and I had a good business and I had lots of staff. And in the industry that I worked in back then, which wasn't huge, the fitness industry, I was doing quite well. But after a while of business creation and development and wealth development and people management, In the middle of all of that success, my overwhelming or I guess my underlying experience was discontent and I just felt physically, mentally and emotionally unsuccessful. So I kind of, my experience in the middle of what looked like success, my personal experience wasn't that. And that's not to say one caused the other or one didn't. That was just my experience. So I had to hit the pause button and go, all right, now 
I've got the biggest personal training business and brand in Australia, and I make good money. Uh, in fact, I make more money than I thought I ever would because I grew up in the country with low expectations, and I'm just a country boy, and I'm in pretty good shape, and I've got a good house, and I've got stuff, and I've got resources. But in the middle of all of my apparent success, I'm not happy or I'm not content, or my default setting is anxiety and overthinking. I think in that moment where most of us just kind of plow on is the time to go, all right, well, what is my life telling me? What are my results telling me? What's my body? What's my higher self, my inner voice, whatever you want to call it, telling me? And so for me, I just literally hit the pause button on my very busy life. Like I was working every day, rock bottom, 16 hours, and I went away. I just went away by myself for 10 days. Didn't talk to another human being that I knew, didn't make a phone call, didn't watch television, didn't use a computer. I didn't do anything other than spend time with myself and journal and try to find clarity and space about what I wanted to do with not just my business, but my life. And, you know, it's very, very difficult to find perspective when you are in the middle of something. You know, and I think Gerber wrote in the e-myth, you know, work on your business. Not, It's hard to work on it when you're in it, you know, and that's like your life. And the thing is, I'll shut up after this because I'm being way too verbose, but, you know, the truth is that we all tell ourselves how objective we are, but we're not objective because the human experience is subjective. So when Craig or Terence or Nadia look at anything, we look at it through the subjective window that is our history, that is our values, that is our beliefs, that is our fears, that is our understanding, our intellect, our likes and our dislikes. So we look at everything through a filter of us. So then you go, well, no, that's just your reality, Craig. You know, that's just... And I think what we do also is in business, in life, in health, in relationships, we grow up in a paradigm where we are kind of taught directly or indirectly how things should be. And so one of my lessons was... You go to school, then you either get a job or go to university, then you make money and you buy stuff, you live in a house, you buy a station wagon, you get married, you have two kids, a dog, and then they have kids and then then you die and that's the cycle. And I'm not saying that's a good or a bad cycle, but it's it doesn't need to be the cycle or it might be something completely different. And I think a lot of us live almost according to some kind of preordained script rather than saying what do I want my life to actually look like is this my best life is this me doing my best I I don't think even sometimes people think about it Uh, that's why we have middle age crisis because they have fallen to routine or drugged with a stream of especially blokes I see it all the time happening amongst my clients when they come and burn out and everything because they felt like they've been dragged along of someone else's story and it's not their story and then this middle age crisis hits like a realization of hang on a second who i am what i'm doing yes i'm making cash but what where the cash goes and all this stuff so the questions start popping out and this inability to analyze because you're too busy with this all and i think leads to this crisis which you have experienced how old were you 36 you walked about in right middle age mm. sort of thing yeah you so, just, and like, i just classic. Re- it's classic yeah, but even now i still you know like i'm 54 and i still am always you know in a healthy way just chill out for a minute is this where i want to be is this what i want to do so what, where do you want to be now 
Well, I want to be doing the things that I think make a difference, things that serve others, but also, obviously... What are, what are those things which things serve so, others? You know, I think, so you and I have a similar role in that we work with people and people tell us about their problems. And yours might be primarily, initially anyway, financial and business and professional, but as you open that door and they go, well, this chick's a good chick, then they tell you about their other stuff and you go, all right, well, there's, as you said, there's layers. Yeah, I can tell you how to maximize your money and how to do this and that, but that's probably not all that needs to be addressed. You know, and so for me, I also said to you upstairs, you know, when I was younger, I was very egotistical. I was all about my body. I was very insecure. I was all about getting approval of guys and girls. I was all about making money so my parents would be proud of me. I was all about ticking all of these boxes and meeting all these criteria that I thought I needed to meet because that's kind of what I was told. And I bought into that. So there's nobody to blame because it was not a bad thing. It was just that was the paradigm that I inhabited. It's like when you grow up a Catholic, which I did, well, you're taught that everyone in the world that isn't Catholic is going to hell and they're on the wrong team and you're on the right team because you've got, thank God, you made it over here with us. And so you grow up in this... Well, I, I was very grateful growing up in communist Russia because the rest of the world was suffering from capitalism. A hundred percent, you know. And so we grow up in our own belief system. And the thing is, in your belief system and in mine, to even question it was terrifying. Well, because you're... That would make me a bad person. That would make me disloyal. That would make me weak. That would make me all of these things. And then one day you go, you know what? That's kind of bullshit. Hang on. What about this? What about because you're not actually always anyway, sometimes you are, but you're not really encouraged to think too much because if you think too much and you dig too deep, you're not going to fit in and we want you to fit in in our interest for you to inhabit our paradigm for you to be on team. Catholicism or team communism or team I find it here in Australia sharper than anywhere else I have been in the world is this tall poppy syndrome. Oh yeah. What is this you guys are? Hey, what don't, do you don't, hey, don't put hey, me in that. Come on, explain hey, it to me. Hey. <laughs> don't put me in that. Jeez. Just explain me because um, you, you're dealing with people and you're dealing with the vulnerable them. So we have low self, higher self, and we have completely vulnerable self. I divide it this way. And then we have this um, kind of people are trying to ask Australians and nobody can explain it to me. This tall poppy syndrome, on one stage, they help you to step up. They're really helpful. They're very supportive. But the moment they see the sign of success, they want to put you down. I wrote a post, write lots of whiteboard messages for my uh, Instagram and social media stuff, and I wrote, everybody wants you to succeed until you succeed. And it's like that here. And look, let's be clear. It's not, well, I'm here and you're here, and that's not our paradigm. I don't know Terence, but I don't think it's his. I don't think that's your belief system, mate. No. Definitely not. not at all. And for me, like I've had people who used to work for me who have set up their own companies. They're killing it. They're doing great. One of my guys... Sam went on, won The Bachelor. He's now got a big brand. His name's Sam Wood. He's got an organization called 28. They've got a multi-million dollar turnover. He's doing great. I'm proud of him. I've got other people who have gone on and a girl who used to work for me just won 
Commonwealth Games gold medal, Catherine Mitchell in the javelin, nothing to do with me, everything to do with her. And I'm proud of them and I love it. And there are people who are depending on your your scale, people that are doing better than me, people doing the same, people doing worse. Depends on, you know, how you rate it or what your success measure is. But I think some Australians have a chip on their shoulder because we feel like the rest of the world is better than us or we're intimidated or something. But in terms of the resentment that comes with other people's success, I mean, generally speaking, I would say that comes out of insecurity. That comes out of fear. I don't know of what because I've I, successful people have always been a curiosity to me. I was fascinated with success and I was fascinated with, you know, I didn't articulate it this way, but when I was a little kid, I was fascinated with the way people think. Like, why do they think like that behavioral psychology? I didn't know what I was talking about then. <laughs> but just that why does this, you know, I'd see something and someone else would see something totally different. I'm like, oh, how, I'd. What? How do they see that? I don't know what that is. And so, you know, there's this, and we're going deep here, but it all relates to business and life. And the thing is that, you know, like we said about the Nadia filter or the Terence or the Craig filter is that we live and operate in a physical three-dimensional practical world where we're sitting in a room, we've, we're all on chairs, we've got this table we can knock on, we've got this microphone that's one inch from my mouth and I can drink my coffee and you can grab your bottle of water and so on. So there's And you pay bills and you put the kids through school and you drive your car and you do all that kind of normal human physical experience, right? But then in the middle of that, you know, making money and spending money and whatever, in the middle of all of that is this conscious creature, us, you know, this thinking, believing, you know, highly evolved, highly complicated and simple at times, you know, multidimensional, psychological, emotional, sociological, spiritual creature that just happens to live in a physical body. And I know this is deep, but this is who we are, but people don't talk about it because it makes them uncomfortable. And because we think that who we are starts and finishes with our body and our stuff. And when the door to, I believe, the door to self-awareness and let's go deep, deep, deep enlightenment and happiness and calm starts when we go, well, who am I beyond my stuff? Who am I beyond my successful business? Nothing wrong with a successful business. Well done. That's amazing. But who am I beyond that? Who am I beyond my biceps or my pretty face or my bank balance or my Ferrari or my whatever it is? Who am I beyond that? And why am I so desperately holding on to this belief system? Why, if anybody challenges me, do I get so upset? Why does there have to be a right and wrong about everything? And I guess there are a few right and wrongs we all agree on, probably murder and a few others. But in general terms, you know, we just are so fear-driven. And I think that... Two things, fear and desire. And whatever yeah, is more stronger, you just it sort of 100%. plays between these And two. does this come back to kind of the, the scarcity versus the abundance type mentality? It can. I think one of the big challenges is, you know, as we try to explore this, who am I beyond my stuff? And even this question that I ask, I'm flying to Perth in a few days and to do a workshop with a few hundred people all around this stuff. And one of the questions I ask is, what is success for you? Like, and you've heard me ask that, what is it? You know, is it about stuff? Is it about not about stuff? And and is it is my success yours? And is Nadia's success in 2000? Can I answer this question? Sure. Success for me, mm. you, Craig, now. Yeah. 
I will see fully successful. If you lose everything you have got mm. in a physical aspect, your bank balance, mm. your mm. house, your everything, mm. and walk out feeling content mm. that you can live and be happy. Mm. This mm. is success for me. Mm. I like people build their wealth. I encourage them to build their wealth, but I also like the spiritual detachment from what they own. Mm. And this is when I feel people are successful. It's not deep at all. It's for me walking off the ship in a new continent. Mm. Can you do that? Mm. What you feel? Me personally? Yeah, you just lost yeah. everything. You signed off all your wealth yeah, to me. Look, and what, what would happen to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there'd be an element of fear there because I'm normal, but I'm comfortable in who I am. You know, I don't like for me to have, you know, the bottom line is. It, the way that the world works is we've got to have a house and we've got to have clothes and we've got to have hot water and electricity. And so, you know, we can't just exist in a spiritual uh, sense, not not until we leave our body anyway, you know. So there are practical things. But And I'm normal in that I like, I like you know, whatever. I like nice food. I like nice clothes. I, well, that's not true. I wear crap. <laughs> you know, but, but I, I'm not... You know, I constantly come under scrutiny from people because I, I, as you know, I spend 98% of my life in cargo shorts and a windsheeter. I got dressed up for you today. I put on jeans and a long sleeve top. Thank you so much. Super special. Thank you. Um, but I, that, yeah, the stuff that a lot of uh, other people, you know, value, I don't value so much. And that doesn't mean I'm better than anyone. I, I just don't. I'm just not interested in that stuff. Like I'm, I'm fascinated with all of the non-physical stuff. Physical stuff doesn't do it for me so much. You know, that like why does why are we the way we are? Why do we think the way that we do? Why do we why did we on the one hand say, you know, I want to, for example, this conversation I've had many times or a version of this, why do you know, I want to get in shape, I want to be fitter and healthier and I want to look after my body. I want to be a bit leaner and and then at the on the same day that person will go and, you know, eat a whole lot of crap, whole lot of high calorie, high sugar. Why do they do it? Well, why most people do it, it's different, but why most people do it is because we're hardwired for pleasure and it's instant gratification. So let's say, for example, you know, John comes to me and goes, I hate my body, I'm 140 kilos, I've got to lose 50 kilos. And, you know, we have a heartfelt conversation and so we go, all right, mate, 50 kilos, it's going to take you about a year to do it properly, so we'll lose it at the right rate, blah, blah, blah. Now, the idea of a year to him is incomprehensibly long. Everyone wants a shortcut, and this is part of the problem. And so the, the problem is two things. One, so in the case of John, if he leaves my office and then goes straight to the bakery and eats five pies, he's going to have instant pleasure because he loves pies. Instant gratification, instant pleasure. But if he walks past the bakery and he goes and gets two apples, he's not going to have instant weight loss. And what we want is instant. And one of the biggest challenges for me as a coach, as a mentor, as a teacher, is to help people to understand that everything, whether or not it's building a successful accounting firm or becoming a you know, a high-level speaker or writing books or getting a PhD and whatever, or buying a pair of shoes, you know, everything comes at a price. So that dude is not losing 50 kilos by Tuesday. So, okay, this is what you want to do. Let's de-emotionalize it. 
okay, tell me why you want to do this. And then we start to work on, so, you know, in when we talk about goal setting, we talk about what the person wants. Then we start to find the underlying drivers. Cool. So, all right, you want to lose 50 kilos. Why? Well, and the bottom line is he wants better self-esteem. He wants to be more attractive to someone. He wants to be more employable. He wants less back pain. He wants to be able to run around with his kids. Okay, they're all good things. And then you dig deeper and you go, but why? And the, the bottom line is he wants to be happy. So when we set a goal, invariably we, we see the, um, the achievement of that goal as a conduit to the thing we actually want. You know, like nobody wants to earn more money to be miserable. Nobody wants to lose 30 kilos to be miserable. Nobody wants to build their own business or brand or write a book or whatever because they think it'll make them less happy. But the challenge then is sometimes we arrive at the destination, you know, we get to where we wanted to go and then we go, this is not it. I've got this awesome body now. I've got abs. I'm pretty or I'm handsome and I'm earning X per week and I'm driving that and I'm living there. But in the middle of all of this stuff, all this physical stuff, I'm still an emotional train wreck and I hate myself and I'm still medicating for depression. So this is, you know, and this is the human... No, no. And this is not for that. (laughs) Just for sore shoulders and (laughs) shitty backs. But yeah, that's the human experience, isn't it? It's trying to help people navigate that as well as you know, I'm going to be best and come back to the point where I wanted to ask you sure. a very uncomfortable question. When So Craig loses everything. What's the first step? Now, you lost everything. The first now. step? Yeah. Try to find somewhere to sleep tonight. Okay, that's good. You found it. Next. Uh, because what I am going to do, okay, I so want to I would create take... a little success story starting from scratch again yeah, so with all me... your knowledge. Because people quite often go, over there, oh, <sighs> if I had this brain when I was 20, yeah. when, when you were 20, you had nothing. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I would, okay, so on a really practical level, I'd get myself organized practically. So, somewhere to sleep, you know, I'd probably buy myself a bike because I couldn't afford a car get some groceries, I wouldn't eat out. I'd, you know, so I'd do all the things that I needed to do to exist physically and practically. And then I would spend as much time as I needed to to figure out what I was going to do. So that might be three hours, it might be three days, it might be three weeks, where I'm going to start, what my plan is. Okay, so what are my skills? What do I know? What am I passionate about? Who do I know? What are my connections? What are my resources? What excites me? What can I do? What's so what would be your main resource now? Because you have got nothing material and you are Craig. You yeah, are, so my main resource would be uh, my knowledge, my experience, my skills and the people that I know and the doors that I can open. So if worse came to worse, I could start working in any gym pretty much within reason tomorrow and start working and train people and, you know, tomorrow. And if that was the worst thing that happened, that's great. You know, it's like, wow, what a hardship. You know, like some people live in the Sudan and sleep in dirt and and have no food. So for me to go, wow, I'm going to work in a multi-million dollar gym and train people, and that's my starting point, what an amazing gift that is. So I'm well aware of that, you know, and for some reason, I don't know why, because I didn't grow up in poverty, and but I've always been very grateful for everything, from my ability to walk to I can turn on the tap and there's cold water. You know, have you travelled a lot? Yeah, I have travelled a lot, and I spent a month in South Africa working with children who were HIV positive. What was the impression? Because I have spoken to the doctor who had to 
look after those kids. Yeah, yes. I went overseas with an organisation called Door of Hope and, yeah, that was life-changing because… Why did you go? To help, yeah. Well, why did you want to help? What what happened in your life to make uh, you go? Well, I just had a friend who was involved and I spoke to him about that and I went, I can afford that practically and emotionally and time and, you know… Like I think, even I know that I get it wrong. Of course I get it wrong. And even I lose perspective, you know, and I think we, well, I need to constantly have a reality check. My reality check in the last 12 months was my mum getting lung cancer and bowel cancer. And so when, you know, last Sunday was Mother's Day. And for me, best day of the year, best day of the year. Like if that was the only good thing that happened in the year, that was the best year for me. So nothing else matters, you know. And when I spent time with, you know, those kids, I worked initially at a place called Acres of Love, which was a house with uh, um, four bedrooms. And I think there was four beds per – four bunks per room, so 16 kids, and they were aged between newborn and five. And so these are all gorgeous little human beings who have been born into this terrible biological reality of being HIV positive. And then all of a sudden, you know, and I get there and it's busy. There's kids everywhere. There's, it's like, cool, here's a kid, here's a bottle, start feeding that kid. Oh, okay. It's not like, oh, there's a four-week induction. No, we're really <laughs> fizzy. Stop being a pathetic Australian and start doing stuff. And so all of a sudden I'm holding and feeding this beautiful, helpless little human that is now 100% in this moment completely dependent on me. And for me, that was a spiritually and emotionally and psychologically one of the best things that I ever did. I was always quite grateful and I think I had quite good awareness anyway, but that for me kind of, you know, realigned things. Did you feel guilty leaving them behind? I didn't feel guilty. I felt sad. I felt sad. Yeah. So, you know, I think that... It- Because quite a few celebrities go over there. Mm. I, I'll just put you in line with celebrities. Angelina Jolie, they tell that she just her eating disorder is a result of her guilt. Mm. So suppressed guilt mm. of living this lavish lifestyle while yeah. what she has seen. But it could be just... Yeah, journalism. maybe, maybe. I think that, you know, you just do what you can with what you have when you can. And that's, I mean, yeah we go down a philosophical rabbit hole with the way that the world is and how much wealth there is yet how much poverty there is alongside that wealth well everybody wants to build wealth that's what they come here like to to me for for Mm. advice wealth Mm. maximization tax minimization and Mm. all this Mm. stuff but at the end of the spot on there is why this question why because you can't build anything unless you understand yourself very Mm. well and present Mm. to the world in a most attractive Mm. way so when people come to you, yep. I'm going to turn the table. So people come to you and they come primarily because they need help financially in whatever capacity and, you know, you do that and then you see or you realize that there's lots of other stuff going on that, that they might be, for want of a better term, you know, mentally or emotionally struggling or what I call it bankrupt. So they've got lots of money but they've got no emotional or spiritual or perhaps sociological wealth do you get involved? Do you have a conversation? Do you talk about that or do you avoid that? I start having a conversation because who I am, I want to help. 
I entire my I also had to align my profession with my values. Mm. Creating wealth for sake of wealth bores me to death. I can tell them all the tricks in the world, but it doesn't give me any pleasure because it goes nowhere. I like getting on bottom like yourself. I like to dig a bit. I probably sometimes step over ethical boundaries, but I do ask permission whether I can talk or not to them. And most probably revealing things come out. It's like couple would come and husband and wife and they are having cash flow crisis and they, she's just on his back all the time. And mm. can, can I just said to him, we need to do this, this, this. And it just bounces off him. He's completely mm. tired, exhausted. Mm. And then I tell you, him, what if I told you your performance in bedroom will be improved 50% after you solve this issue. With I want to see the data on that. Sold. 50%. It's always a very convenient round. I think it's 47. See, this is where it's, you get interested. You start talking. You you interrupted me because this oh, is right. where... That's yeah. right. I'm a, I'm a dude and she's talking about yeah. sex performance improvement. Yes. Definitely but uh, financial health linked to your physical mm. health as well as you know and the confidence improves mm. the moment you solve few issues and everything so there are deeper issues affected therefore there is some underlying reason why people stop looking after their body their finances mm. and their families there, there is some depressed human being there sitting and you have to dig it out and make them Mm. see it or admit to it mm. and that's probably first thing starts where and i think the thing about whether it's emotion psychology physiology sociology money nothing operates in isolation no. everything is integrated exactly you know it's like i always when i talk to people about being a total human i say listen this is what happens you have a thought Right, so that's that's a that's a non-physical thing. It's a thought. It's a cognitive kind of experience. But let's say the thought is, "I'm in trouble. I'm in danger." So what happens then is your endocrine system, your cardiovascular system, your nervous system. You know, everything starts to your respiratory system. Everything responds. So you now your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes up, your body's producing adrenaline and cortisol, norepinephrine, and your sympathetic nervous system switches on, fight or flight, da 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 da, all through one thought. Right. And so everything, and plus emotionally, there's a shift. You've gone into anxiety now. So, and that was just from an initial cognitive thing, which spills into emotion and physiology. Then a moment later, you figure out, oh, actually, I'm safe. I'm not, there is no danger. But everything kind of spills into everything else. And when the story is even, say, from a financial point of view, I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills this week. Well, then there's fear, there's stress, there's anxiety, there's overthinking, there's self-doubt, and there's a bunch of physiological adrenaline cause, all that stuff, and then sleeplessness, and I'm not sleeping, and so that's compounded, and then now I'm snapping at my wife because I'm angry. And so there's just this cascade of multidimensional kind of stuff going on. So spot on, when I talk to the business owners, I tell money is not bank account. Mm. Money is energy. Mm. You create energy. Ooh, I like that. It flows mm. and everything. And when I talk to, I've got an artist and she couldn't understand the difference between profit and loss and cash flow. I had to talk in colors. Right. Money is blue, it's water, it's flowing. This is cash flow. Wow. And so we had to use all sorts of stuff. So I have to speak, I have to drop the accountants and speak their language to yeah. explain them reality of what, how to attract it and how to retain it and 
how to minimize certain things, maximize certain things. So that's, but you have to use a little bit deeper conversation in mm. order to connect and help. If I just simply number crunch or bin counter, whatever they call the, this here, I'm useless. Mm. I'm doing just postmortem analysis of the last year. And mm. here, oh, the verdict, you, this is your text. And it's funny, whether or not you talk about money and business and P&L or da-da-da-da, or I'm talking about anatomy or physiology or whatever, or, or subjective reality, you need to speak a language that connects exactly. with your clients. Yes. I need to, I could be talking about the most amazing things, but I'm not using the right language, so I'm not connecting or I'm not telling the right story. And the same with you. My question to you is, everybody has, for want of a better term, a relationship with money right do you talk to them about because there's an emotional and a psychological energy around money do you talk to them about how they relate to money exactly i noticed a few people have guilt it's not that we want to be rich or things like that they right. have guilt of uh, start doing well this is my disclaimer i don't want to be rich but yes exactly but however we just i'm looking or people have problems for example they got child support issue and they worried about it and but they don't know how to open mm, it up mm. and everything so what i do say we go level deeper and i just say what really represents to you mm. for example why wouldn't you want to fix your business mm. she just i'm not really into money i said what do you mean into money explain me what money stands for and she just started telling i never was good with numbers mm. i said it has nothing to do with numbers I can be pretty useless in mathematics, but be great accountant. Mm. Money is about your relationship is with external world. It's accumulating energy and sharing it with people you care for. Mm. That's what money is. If I present you this way, if you fix this and this in your business, it will create better cash flow, which enable you to take your son or daughter to this dream holiday where you can connect to them and take them to certain places they dreamt of. How would you? change your relationship with money would it still be dead numbers or mm. would it be real ticket to think so i stopped talking about money making money i start making events in their life which are meaningful to them mm. through obviously energy they have mm. to have source of mm. it so true and and there is a lot of that guilt and that apprehension around money and even embarrassment around money yes there is. you know i remember when i um so one of my stories about money is and and we talk about you know, in business, whether or not we're in someone else's business or our own, there's, you know, self-worth comes into it. And I remember a long time ago in the 80s, I was working, I was managing a gym not far from here. And I think I was earning $12 an hour, which I was killing it, Terence, as you can mm. imagine. Yeah, killing it. And How many years ago? Okay, so I was probably 23, so 30 years ago. They probably meant something, this $12. Yeah, it was probably not a bad wage, you know. I mean, I think it like what's the average age hourly rate in the US? I think it's still about $9 or something ridiculous. But anyway, so I was earning my 12 bucks an hour and I was gym instructor, manager, teaching, you know, like a few classes and pretty fundamental stuff. But I wasn't doing any, so 23, I wasn't doing any personal training per se because personal training hadn't really kicked off. And then a guy came in and he asked me to train him. Well, he came in and he was talking about training and then he said he'd like one-on-one -on -one stuff, right? So it didn't just come in and go, well, you, we had a conversation. You know, we got on quite well and he said, well, would you train me? And I went, yeah, you know, if we can figure out times. And 
And so he became my first personal training client. But what happened was he said to me, okay, cool. So when can we start? And I went, oh, you know, in the next, I don't know, few days. And he went, right, how, what's, the, um, what's that going to cost me? I'll do three a week with you. What's that going to cost me? So I'm sitting there going, all right, well, three times $12 is 36. So if I charge him $50 a week, that's kind of 17 bucks an hour, which based on my sense of value of myself was all right. I thought 17 bucks is not too bad because I'm on 12. So, And then in some rare moment of courage or stupidity, I said to him, he said, how much for three sessions a week? I went 100 bucks, as in for the total. So $33 an hour, which was nearly three times my hourly rate. And this is 30 years ago. No one in the fitness industry was earning $33 an hour. And not to my knowledge anyway. And as it came out of my mouth, I regretted it because I thought he's going to say no and I've just fucked this up because this was not a bad opportunity and he's a good dude and he'll think I'm a dickhead now, I'm greedy because clearly I'm not worth it. And I'm just doing this in a dialogue and he goes, great, see you Monday. And I'm like, <laughs> what just happened? What's your perception what of happened? value compared to I'm his? Like, 100% because yeah. I'm not worth that. And then, and then he turned up on Monday with 100 bucks. Uh, with a hundred bucks cash in it, I'm like fucking hell. And so I trained this guy, and he loved it. Didn't even think that it was expensive, and kept bringing his mates. And in the first five weeks, he bought five friends, at who who all wanted to train with me. I was doing no personal training. Then all of a sudden, I'm doing eighteen sessions a week. So now I'm making six hundred dollars extra a week on top of my like five hundred dollar wage. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm making more in 18 hours than yeah. I was in 50 or whatever it was. And it was just the biggest lesson for me was, and I didn't learn it straight away, like I had this self-imposed limitation of my value. And because I had shit self-esteem and I didn't think a lot of me, I didn't feel worthy. I know this sounds funny, but I didn't feel worthy of $33 now. And even even a year down the track when I was kind of getting more used to it, I still felt like somebody's going to come in one day and go, nah, just kidding, give us all the money back. <laughs> like I felt like a fraud. But I you- felt like a fraud. And I've, I've always, and I share this with people, I've always had that, you know, while I know, I know I can train that person or I know I can stand and talk to this audience or I know I can write that book or I know I can do this TV interview. There's the intellectual knowing, but that fat 14-year-old Craig, he's still there. He's still there and he's still that fear-based emotion, that self-doubt, that self-loathing on some level is still hardwired. And so he comes out every now and then. But do you think that probably a lot of business owners are guilty of doing the same thing? Or a lot of people running businesses or even in their lives? Yeah, and then, yeah, I don't know that a lot. I think some. And I think at the other end of the scale, it's like I have people who come to me who are just staying on track, personal trainers, and they qualified last week. They've got no experience. They've got almost no skills, and they want to earn $100 an hour training people. I go, why 100 That I'm worth it. I go, why are you worth it? Well, because uh, I go, you're not worth it because you think you're worth it. You're worth it because someone's there with $100 prepared to pay it, right? And so even by the time I trained my first client, I had six or seven years experience working in gyms, writing programs, doing assessments, managing people. And I still didn't think I was ready to do one-on-one. 
you know. And so I think it's all across the spectrum. And it's like people say, you know, I coach quite a lot of speakers. And there, there is that kind of what am I worth per hour and or what, what can I charge for this? And it's like the space that I inhabit these days, with my main job, which is corporate speaking and doing conferences, but let's just go with corporate speaking. It's a really interesting kind of psychological minefield because you might get, you know, somebody who is in the professional speaking space who might come and talk to your team for $1,000. But like a, a normal professional speaker would not do that. Like the rock bottom hourly rate for professional speakers is about $3,000, you know. And so you have people who are earning three, four, five, ten thousand dollars $10,000 for a keynote and up. And that's just, you know, to the average person, that's ridiculous, you know. And then you go, but if that's the price and there's a company there and they're going, sure, we're going to book Nadia, how much she's going to come and talk to us about X, Y, Z, it's to the NAB, it's to their this and their that team, and she's six grand for a 90-minute workshop, cool. Then all of a sudden you're earning six grand, everybody's okay. But it took me a long time to get my head around that and to not feel negative or guilty or, you know, and, and I have people who come to me and some who think they're worth $1,000 an hour straight away, they're not. Some who think they're worth two hundred dollars, they might be worth two thousand dollars. Depends on their skill and their their relatability and their profile. But at the end of the day, you're kind of selling. Let's assume that you can stand and speak and share messages and thoughts and ideas, and you have something of value to say, and you can read an audience. Well, beyond that, you're really selling your brand. You know, because and your brand determines generally what people will pay for you. It's a really interesting point, and I'm interested in what you think drives that behavior you know some people just saying i'm scared to charge yeah you know thirty dollars an hour and some people saying i want a thousand dollars an hour straight off even if they're not fear worth and it. delusion <laughs> at each end of the scale end, delusion well, at the, the other that's how craig keeps things real he just <laughs> peeled it back to very basic well fear and delusion like fear i'm not good enough delusion i'm amazing well mm. and that that's not an insult but mm. right now you're not amazing you have no track record. No one knows who you are. You you might have amazing potential, but you haven't done anything, you know? Yeah, sure. Like I could be potentially the best artist in the world and I go, well, I'm an amazing – my dad's an artist, so the artwork here, you know, he's a proper award-winning artist, right? I could go, I'm an amazing artist. Well, show me your work. Well, I haven't done any yet. Well, you've got to paint before you can actually call yourself an artist and we need to see some work so then we can evaluate how good you are or we can at least have an opinion. And I think some people are like that. And when somebody, you know, we spoke before about everything comes at a cost. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people who come to me and say, you know, I want to open my own uh, personal training studio or I want to be an elite high-level trainer. I only want to work with like celebrities or elite athletes or, or I want to be a corporate speaker and I go, all right, well, what you need to do, uh, Mr. Wannabe Corporate Speaker, unless you already have a big profile from something else, then the rules are different. But if you have no experience, little to no experience, little to no skill, and little to no brand or profile or recognition, then you are probably going to have to do somewhere between one to five years of gigs, right? Because what you're trying to do is build a brand, recognition, credibility, experience, skill, insight, awareness. And there are so many things that go to creating that speaker who can earn three or four or five 
was thousand dollars for a 60 minute presentation and it ain't you saying that you're that good you know so i guess it's that balance between where, where did this knowledge come from i just pay attention to people this, yeah this goes back to you know listen to some of what people say and pay attention to everything but, they do like life tells you results tell you like I would, back before I even had a degree in exercise science, when I had a very basic qualification to work in gyms, I would watch the way that bodies responded to various stimuli and I'd go, all right, well, when we do A, then this is generally the outcome. When we do B, that's the outcome. If I do this, or you know, and so the results tells you, you know, like if if you stand up and you, you're in front of an audience, like here's an example. People, I get asked this a lot. What's the most important thing to become a good speaker? Like, what's the, if there was just one thing, what do you think it is? Like, what do you think the difference is between someone who's, let's say there's a speaker and he's got his or her message is relevant. Mm-hmm. It would be uh, of interest and value to the audience. Mm-hmm. They're articulate. They've got a great education. They've got a great story. They've got the right academic background. They look good got amazing vocabulary but there's one thing missing which means they're never going to be any good i'm going for is nadia going to have a go at this as well i'm going yes. for empathy pun empathy charisma you okay. don't have to be empathetic but you have to be really okay both of those matter both of those matter but you can work on both of those but the thing that kills people is their inability to be able to control fear and nerves and anxiety in front of an audience so if you get up there, but you can't self-manage, if you can't manage fear in the moment, you can't be good. I'm freak of the nature. I'm different in yeah, this yeah, aspect. Yeah. I, I enjoy it. I go on the stage. They pushed me on the stage first time at mm. school, and mm. these old people were mm. screaming and everything. Mm. I felt my first adrenaline rush, mm. and I went for it. Mm. I love it. Mm. But it's- and that's good. And I'm not saying... Like you're the exception though, that is, and then you did well. Did you do well? Yeah. Yeah. So you're the exception and that is great. But the majority of people, you know, Biggest like- Biggest impediment to this was coming to Australia and overcoming this because I was told that my accent is too strong. I can't talk. I shouldn't be on radio. I shouldn't do this. Mm. So I took back 20 years. Yeah, but they told Arnold the same thing. <laughs> mm. They did. They told yeah. Arnold, you'll never do a no, movie. But it's my own stupidity for listening to it. So mm. it's, I paid the price for my stupidity. You wouldn't want to be that guy who told Arnold that, would you? <laughs> no, well, that guy's probably <laughs> not around anymore. But yeah, I think it's that ability to be able to recognize what it is that you need to work on or develop. And, you know, I always say to people, this is not about, you know, becoming better is not about self-loathing. It's about self-awareness and just self-honesty. And I was talking to somebody recently and they're like, oh, you know, uh, they're keen to become a speaker. And I said, let me tell you a typical scenario. Because the week before I'd done a gig at, I think it was Crown, I said, this is what happens. So I'm speaking at 11. And I get there at 10.30 and some guy called Brian comes up and he puts a cordless microphone, a lapel mic on me, runs it down inside my shirt, into my pocket. And then at about, you know, five minutes to 10, I've got uh, five minutes to 11, I'm back in the room, I'm sitting up the back. Then about two or three minutes before I speak, I'll walk up to the side. You know, there might be 800 people in the room. I walk up to the side and I'm just one speaker of, say, eight or 10 for the days. It's just a conference and I am a speaker. might be for Telstra or whomever. 
And then some guy who doesn't know me, he will read my bio, then he'll introduce me. And I'll walk up on the stage with my lapel mic and I've got to talk for 60 minutes to 800 people who don't know me and don't care whether or not I crash and burn or succeed. Then I get on stage and I look out and I can hardly see a person because the lights are in my eyes. So I can't see faces. So it's very difficult to create connection. And on three, two, one, and go. Now you're on talk for 60 minutes. Be interesting. Be funny. Be relevant. Don't say um. Don't freeze. Don't go blank. And be amazing because we're paying you a lot. Ready, set, go. (laughs) And when I describe that to people, they're like, oh, that is terrifying. I go, that is what you do. That is what you do. You're not standing at your cousin's wedding just talking about pissed stories. You know, you're not you're not talking a room full of drunk people about, you know, what you guys did when you were teenagers. You need to be interesting, relevant, inspirational, empowering, enlightening, funny, charismatic, and you need to be calm. How do you stay calm? Experience. You can't get good at what you don't do. You can't master what you avoid. So how do you be calm in would seem to be a stressful situation by putting yourself in stressful situations? How do you get physically strong? You work against physical resistance. You lift weights, progressively overload your body. How do you get mentally and emotionally strong? By working against mental and emotional resistance. That is where so you do change. Do you ever like sort of abstract from it to gain this calmness? Do you ever make a little distance, mental distance from the situation and become an observer? Oh, I see, yeah. That's problematic, no? I think there's no set protocol. You know, for me, I literally can be two minutes before an event, depending on the event, and sitting looking at Facebook on my phone just because, <laughs> or, or sending an SMS or, or having or chatting with someone because there's nothing more I can prepare, you know. Sometimes, like if I'm doing an event like a Craig Harper live events where we might have hundreds of people, you know, everyone has a bit of a routine. So my routine is I don't want to get there and I walk into the foyer and I'm talking to a whole bunch of people. I don't get myself in a great place. So I will literally, if I'm doing like this weekend, I'm in Perth and the the workshop runs from 9.30 till 12.30, I'll be around the corner somewhere having a coffee by myself and I will get to the venue at 9.28. I'll get to the venue so pretty much everyone's seated. Melissa, who's my business partner, will be talking to the audience. She'll be giving everyone a bit of a brief on what's going to happen and where the toilets are and turn off your mobile phones and thank you for coming and she'll thank the event crew and all that stuff and then and she'll introduce me. And I'll walk in and that's it. And that works well for me. And so we're all trying to figure out our own operating system. I mean, you know, whether or not I talk about this notion of having an operating system, everyone, whether it's business or life or the way we eat or the way we manage our body or don't manage our body or love or relationships or wealth, we all have a normal operating system. And it's trying to figure out whether or not that operating system works or doesn't work. Right. Now, coming back to the purpose of my podcast is uh, Terence, we come up um, with its three nuggets of value, which you be giving to listeners 
who are business owners now. So. Have, haven't I given like way more than what, what is I, this? I would like you want me to do a recap? Have That's I invoiced you for these extra well, three nuggets? <laughs> I don't know how many zeros are going to be on the invoice. Jeez. <laughs> so I'm talking about the in summary because we did go through every a lot of things and they are deep things. Yeah. And we talk about Craig Harper walking out on the streets without anything and starting from the beginning. Mm. And this is what a lot of people are starting in jumping mm. into unknown. And these three pillars of strengths, I would just want to recap very quickly. What would they be if I ask mm. you only three? Uh, look, on the spot. So my general, here are three things. I don't know if these would be my top three, but these are three that come to mind now for business owners. One is manage you first. Manage you. Kill me. So one would be managing yourself and by that, I mean just looking after you physically, mentally, emotionally, managing stress, managing sleep, managing food, managing your body from just a movement and a health point of view. So self-management would be one, because if we're in a successful business, but we are personally train wrecks, well, then we're probably not succeeding. Number two would be, we talk about this thing abstractly, it's a little bit outdated, but people still talk about work-life balance. I talk about work impact. So, and and by that I mean identifying and acknowledging the impact, good or bad, that your work has on you. So, for example, Terence, if you did a job that you hated, but you only did it 20 hours a week, but you hated it, that would probably have more of a damaging, even if you made the same money as doing another job where you worked 60 hours, but you loved it right so we've got version one 20 hours 100 grand a year you hate it you don't like going there you don't like the culture you don't like the job you don't like what you do there's nothing interesting about it you don't sleep well the night before because you don't want to get up and go there even though it's only four hours a day blah 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 conversely you've got this other thing where it's an amazing role and all of the things that you're passionate about creativity and people and connection and expression and whatever it is right that's what you're doing 60 hours a week, three times the hours. And so the impact is actually a positive one. So we kind of in our collective culture for a long time anyway have spoken about work-life balance like it's some kind of equation. If we work this much, we play or socialize this much or don't work this much, then we kind of find the right number then we will be balanced because that doesn't take into account lots and lots of variables. So for me, it's about identifying the impact, good or bad, that your work has on you and then trying to find something which for you serves the purpose of, one, creating what you need it to create, whether that's wealth or security or, you know, and also that, that meets other needs like creativity, like emotional investment, like something that aligns. Like if you're doing a job that doesn't align with you, <laughs> Good yeah. luck having a, any yeah. enjoyment. That resonates with me a lot. I, in, in fact, one of my things is to really do you know what I enjoy mm. the most. And I guess through some of the successes that I've had on, along the way, uh. that allows me now to actually do what I enjoy the most and to kind of not have to do the other stuff. And I that guess. is exotic dancing. Is that right? Well, <laughs> I'm not bad at that. Yeah. No, I've seen you. That, no, that video Nadia That's, sent me. And how Nadia do you get me. in that outfit? It's so Nadia tiny. got me. It's just one of those moments. <laughs> yeah. Was that her outfit or is that your own? I think it might have been hers. Fantastic. You look great. Yeah. And my third one, my third, she's shaking her head. Why yeah, is that? Oh, I wasn't having a bit of fun. It. Oh, sorry. Oh, so, let's be back to boring business.
my last one is culture, is creating a culture where, or an environment where people want to be. If you've got the best business in inverted commas from a technical perspective, you know, good product or good services or good turnover or good profit, but it's not a workplace that people enjoy. Like I didn't always nail it, but I really tried hard to create an environment in my gyms that was just fun. So yeah, people, we met their needs, we trained them, we looked after them, we were professional, we executed the things that we needed to in a professional way but at the same time I wanted my guys and girls to love coming there I wanted my clients to love coming there and you know so that's about creating an experience you know because it was a very people-based business so you know whether or not it's a restaurant a cafe or even an accountant that I'm going to see where if I enjoy that person's company and I enjoy the other staff then I don't dread going to the accountant I don't you know whatever it is so creating an environment or a culture as a leader or as a business owner or as a manager where people enjoy being, I think that matters. Thank you. That's great. Yeah, that's really good. If you do describe yourself without calling yourself a name, what would it be? Three words. Without calling myself a name? Profession, anything. Student, teacher, thinker. That's it. Student, teacher, thinker. Sounds well, cliche, but it's true. It does. It's, um, well, it does sound uh, cliche. Look, this has actually it's been a really enjoyable conversation actually thanks so mate. thanks You're for welcome, uh, thanks for well thanks to both of you <laughs> for having this conversation i guess how can our listeners get mm. in contact with you mm. Craig? just come to my house i will put the address up and just lob over <laughs> yeah put in that might in the, get a in bit the busy but yeah we'll put in a turnstile at the gate is it there might be a coffee shop over the road you can go for a coffee people can okay so if you want to get snapshot of the stuff that I do go to my website which there's a lot of resources so articles and videos and interviews and podcasts which is all free content which is craigharperoneword.net you can follow me on Instagram which is at whiteboard lessons and of course I'm on uh, I've got two Facebook pages as well so just Craig Harper so there's a professional and a personal one and there's yeah you can follow I just put up stuff don't, don't try to be his friend he's too full well it's not that I'm full I just didn't really want you on my team. It's so all right. I, I recovered. Accepted it's, it took <laughs> <laughs> Instead. You can only take one. It took a few months, but I recovered. <laughs> I'm sure we'll workshop you through it after this. <laughs> right. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Unfair Advantage Project. For more curated resources, visit us at unfairadvantageproject.com.